Despite all the turmoil in the industry, automotive designers are in their glory days. There is a recognition now throughout the industry that the only car companies that are going to come out of the current slump are the ones that come out with exciting new products. And it is the job of designers to make sure they look exciting. Moreover, automotive designers are getting more respect than they ever have, as with Brian Nesbitt being pulled out of GM Design to run the Cadillac brand. And Ralph Gilles at Chrysler, who not only runs the design group, but has been given the title of CEO of the Dodge Passenger Car brand. And today my guest is one of the top designers in the business, Ian Callum, who runs the design studios at Jaguar. We'll be talking in part about the new Jaguar XJ that just debuted about a month ago, but we'll also be talking about what it's like working at Jaguar now that it's been bought by Tata, the car company from India. And joining me on my journalist panel today are Eddie Alterman, the editor of Car and Driver magazine, and Gary Vasilash, the editor of Automotive Design and Production Magazine. We'll be back in a moment to talk about automotive design at Jaguar. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of AutoLine Detroit with our special guest today, Ian Callum, the head of design for Jaguar. Great having you here for AutoLine Detroit. Well, it's a pleasure. I feel very honored to be here. I'm looking forward to it. We also have joining us today Gary Vasilash, the editor of Automotive Design and Production Magazine, and Eddie Alterman, the editor for Car and Driver Magazine. Great having you guys here, too. Thanks, John. Let's talk Jaguar design, and it's going through an evolution right now, having been very traditional in the past. Uh, recently, in the last year or so, you came out with the XF. It's been yep. received very well, certainly in this market, I believe, worldwide now. It's doing well. Yep. And the XJ coming out, too, yep. which carries sort of the same thing, theme of the XF. But yep. again, getting away from the traditional look, talk a little bit about this evolution of design going on at Jaguar. Yeah, well, it's actually probably more, if you look at the way we've come from the S-Type and the XJ, it's more of a revolution, really. But there's nothing unusual in it, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the team's concerned. And it's really harkening back to what Jaguar used to be. Uh, back in the 60s, it was a modern car company, very youthful car companies, rock stars, footballers all drove Jags. And uh, the bad guys drove Jags, which is quite important. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we want to get that kind of sense of mystique and, and, and sexiness back in the brand. And, and it's starting to work for us. People are starting to get it. So we're getting back to where we should be. But with those people who are used to seeing the more traditional side of Jag over the past 30 years, it's, it's a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock. So the revolution, as you say, is really going after a new generation of buyers? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we don't want to discount the people who, who naturally have Jaggers at the moment and love Jags at the moment. In fact, they're coming, most, most of them are coming with us without any question. They love the car, they love the brand. But we have to get conquest buyers into Jaguar. We, we can't continue as we are. We, we need to get younger people, or I say younger-minded people, you know, 55 is a new 35 or 30 or, 30 or the other way around. But, uh, Hope so. but uh, yeah, well, you know, that's what I work on anyway. <laughs> and, uh, but it's young-minded people. You know, when people get into the 50s and 60s now, admittedly, these are the ones who can afford the cars. Don't think like 15, 60-year-olds used to. They want something that their sons want to see them in, you know. So it's quite important. Mm -hmm. Youthfulness is quite important. How do you keep the heritage, though? I mean, there's there's certain quintessential jaguarness, I, I would imagine, that you have to somehow... Uh, Retain as you move on in this this revolution. Yeah, and, and you know, and we, I, what I had to do when I started at Jaguar was to try and find what there is in the heritage of the company that I instinctively understood, 
but put it in the words that I could then relate to other people. And it really, what I found out was, it really was about making the best looking cars on the road at the time. And that really started with the architecture, the visual architecture, and the beautiful simple lines and beautiful surfacing of the car. And that's something I instinctively understood, as most designers do. It takes an enormous amount of discipline to do that. And if you get that right, and you get the dynamics of the car right, performance-wise, then I think you have a jag. Then what you can do is add on some of the visual cues of the past, such as you know the fluted headlamps on the XF, and the, the swage lines, the power bulge in the bonnet, and maybe some of the graphics and the tail lamps. And if you can pick up cues and put on top of that, then it's a little bit of fun on top. You can point to them and say that's from an older car. But the fundamentals are about proportion and stance and, and all that good stuff that Jaguars were renowned for, maybe subconsciously back in the 60s. So good bones and... Absolutely. It's a draftsmanship. You know, as I always say, you know, the, the architecture of a car is like the draftsmanship of a painting. If, it, if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it doesn't matter what paint you throw at it, it will never be right. And really, that's, that's what the essence of it is, about that physical, visual structure. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, how it might be harder to design today than it might have been in the past. There's so much impact of legislation these days from crash protection. Now <coughs> you've got A-pillars that are almost as thick mm -hmm. as a tree trunk. You've got pedestrian impact standards in Europe that are going to end up here as well, that you've got to have a certain amount of uh, crush space in the hood or the bonnet, as you might call it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how that's impacted design and how do you get around that as a designer, or can you? Well, the first, you, you do get around it because you have to. The first thing that I take on board is this is part of designing the car. There's no avoiding it. There's no point in moaning about it or complaining about it. You just get on with it. And, uh, and design is about problem solving. It's not just about making a pretty shape. It's about the problem solving and creating a nice looking car within these boundaries. Yes, it's getting tougher. Yes, the overhangs have to be a certain length for crash. The header has to be a certain height for unbelted occupants in America. The bonnet, as we call it, has to be a certain height for Europe. And it really is almost like joining the dots at times. And the, the, the challenge for designers is to try and create beautiful lines between the dots and manipulating some of these things to the best of your ability. But they do almost determine an awful lot of what the profile of the car is. And that's why so many cars of a certain type and class start to look quite similar. You know, the aerodynamics take effect and you won't change the law of physics as much as we'd like to. <laughs> and, so, and so all these things do take some effect on the car. But I think at the end of it, we can produce something which still looks distinctly different than, than we've done something very good and, and very worthwhile. So graphics on the car become more important, yeah. the face, uh, obviously, like you talked about, the DLO and mm. uh, the D-pillar and things of that nature. How do you move that sort of large car um, look to a smaller sports car? I mean, how do you, how do you take... It's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I just read my auto car and I... Um, I think you have to approach each car slightly differently. The thing about a Jaguar is that what we do is we wrap the skin as tightly around the, the, the structure of the car as we possibly can, because that's what a sports car is about. And when we get to doing a sports car of any kind, whether it be a two-seater or a four-seater, it will be very much about wrapping the skin around the, the, the skeleton of the car. And therefore, the objective I have is to make sure all these hard parts are pushed as far into the vehicle as we possibly can make them. Some things won't move, of course, but um, it really is just, just that, and then disciplining the lines tightly about it. It's, it's, it's very challenging. What's been so impressive to me, and I don't know if you guys have the same feeling, is that um, 
Jaguar is kind of all of a piece now. The the chassis refinement mm -hmm. um, hasn't been uh, dialed back. In fact, I think um, the ride handling balance of the cars is sharper than ever. They still ride great, but they have that that integrity, that dynamic integrity. And um, I think uh, for the first time in a long time, they, they really function, both uh, the underpinnings and mm -hmm. the, the exterior function beautifully together as a whole. How much work do you do in terms of focusing um, with guys like Mike Cross? Um, we work a lot with him. I mean, Mike is, 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 is actually in charge of the full vehicle integrity in actual fact. So I work with Mike on even things like the steering wheel rim and how it feels mm. to drive. Anything that we effectively build into the car that he has to work with driving it, we, he, we're, we're in contact all the time. Um, the, the stance of the car is very important because what we try and do is portray the fact that the car will deliver a, a dynamic performance that you'd expect looking at it. And that's exactly what the car does do. Um, it's more psychological than, 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 than metric-driven or anything like that. The dynamics are metric-driven, of course. Um, but we work very closely together. And I work very closely um, with the engineering team to make sure that all the sheet metal we're working in, is, we're not wasting any, any space or any, we don't have any visual fat in the car effectively. It's very, very tight. So the reaction with the rest of the, the, um, the engineering and the, the driving teams, the driving teams are very, very, very close indeed. And I go out driving with Mike and I start to get a feel of what his expectations of the car might be. And it's quite scary sometimes you can imagine, but uh, you know, we have a very close relationship, yeah. We, 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 we do work as one, so it's very important. And you know, the full integrity of the car I think comes out that way, yeah. Ian, um, Jaguar has embraced aluminum unlike most other car companies. I can think of only one other. Right. You, you might know that as aluminium, just aluminium. for the translation. I'm bilingual in this one. So, <coughs> aluminum. Is, is that advantageous or disadvantageous to you as a designer? Um, or neutral? Okay, uh, as a designer, I like problem solving. It's advantageous is that in that I know it's better for the vehicle all around. That makes me feel better in producing the car in the first place. So it's advantageous, it's advantageous to the, the product. It's difficult from my point of view in terms of creating shape because aluminium or aluminum has its own mind. It's, it's very difficult to get, you have to press it more times to get it to do what it has to do. The radiuses, the depth you have to get in it, that you might want in it is restrictive. But we're getting better at this. We've been doing this for a long time now. We started on the XK, you know, all these years ago. And we uh, really are, I think, becoming quite expert at knowing what we can and cannot do with aluminium, aluminum. And, uh, you know, I work again very closely with, with uh, Mark White, who's our, our guru, our aluminium guru, as I call him. And we work together. You know, I, I push him and he pushes me back. But we find that crossover point quite quickly. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a nice sense of honesty about what we can and can't do. But I think we're getting better. But it's restrictive, yeah. I mean, it's, it's demanding. It's much thicker than steel, remember. As a designer, you guys seem to touch sort of every piece of the car, <laughs> yes. you know, all the manufacturing. Total vehicle, I know. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you think of this, this trend? Maybe it's a trend of two or three of promoting designers to CEOs of uh, divisions or car companies. Yeah, I don't really understand it. You don't? I'm quite puzzled by it. Yeah, I mean, if they do a good job, fine. And good luck to them. I wouldn't want to do it. I, I want to design cars. And I'd rather leave the CEO, CEO, CEO's job to somebody who can operate systems and functions and, and, uh, 
and, and the finances especially. No, not for me. But good luck to them. I mean, you guys are sort of the ultimate product guys, as much as the engineers, in a sense. So to me, it's kind of a, an encouraging step because for all the talk uh, that certainly the domestic manufacturers have, have uh, prattled on about uh, concerning product and the primacy of product, now they've actually got people in there who have touched every yeah. aspect of the product. Yeah, I can understand that. And I appreciate that. I think it's very respectful. However, I think a designer, as a designer, I have boundaries to push. And that is one of my objectives. I'm yeah. pushing the boundaries all the time, my own boundaries as much as anything else. I'm stretching the boundaries of the guys that uh, are, are creating the, the aluminum bodies. Um, the guys with the chassis, I'm always wanting wider tracks. And of course, working with Mike Cross, he always helps me with that one because he gets better handling. So we work very much hand in hand in that stuff. But my boundaries are quite clear. You know, I, I want to produce something which is aesthetically and practically exciting. A CEO's got quite a different task. And I think, I think there's a danger you get a conflict of interest there. And as a CEO, I would have to say to my design team, sorry, I don't like your boundaries because it's going to cost you too much money. But as a designer, could I make that true judgment? Yeah. You know, do I know what these boundaries are as a CEO? And you need these boundaries within every function. It's a personal thought, that's all. But I think I'd have a conflict of interest in balancing the, the manufacturing, the finance, the personnel skills, very important, and the objective of just producing a great-looking car. I think I'd rather just stick to my boundaries and have somebody else push and pull me around within those and I, can, I know where the limits are then. But as a boss, I might have a bit of a, a, bit of a, a discipline problem. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? I mean, you know, it might work. And, and I, I wish them well. I wish them well. One to keep an eye on, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think everybody in the industry is going to keep an eye on that. Yeah. And it is curious, and they're, they're taking slightly different but, approaches. But you're right. I think, you know, I, I think designers can take a sentiment of pride in that. If you look at a car business, designers generally have a, a, a stronger overview of a product as a total entity than most people within the business. You're right. But it's very product biased. Yeah. It's never, it's never naturally manufacturing or finance biased. And, and that's why you need these boundaries. But, but uh, we do, uh, we're very privileged. We do touch every part of the car, even the engine covers. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, talk a little bit about some of the technology that's coming forth right now from a design standpoint. I'm thinking about things. <coughs> We've seen projector headlamps now moving to LED headlamps. We're, we're seeing automakers being able to do a whole lot more with glass. So far, only in the sunroof area or full glass yeah. roof area, but there, there seems to be a lot change there. Wheels and tires are far bigger than they've ever been, and yet, mm. uh, in many cases, automakers are able to maintain the ride, even though they've got these, these oh, big rims with meat I know. on them. I know. Talk a little bit about some of the technology and how it may enhance or, or maybe not enhance. I do, feel, I do feel slightly guilty about the unsprung weight sometimes, especially when I'm with Mike Cross, because I know he would like to make the rims a little bit smaller. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about technology is, I don't want to go into all the detailed technology, but you're right, headlamps, glass, metal, you know, construction. These are things that designers, they owe it to themselves to understand what's going on out there. And most of them do, you know, especially in, in the, the detailed technology, instrument packs, uh, lighting, etc. And using that technology, find out about, and just again, pushing the limits with the supplier, because that's who we work with. And then pushing these limits within the boundaries or, or within the, the, the business you're in itself. And and seeing how far you can actually get, how slim you can get these headlamps, or how technically uh, astute you can make these these instrument clusters. 
That's a designer's uh, um, mandate to do that. So there's a lot of learning that a designer nowadays has to find out about, and that is to find out about the technologies out there and the freedom it might give them. Because more often than not, it's the designers that start pushing these limits of how slim the lamps are, how big the wheels can be. Which reminds me, we must find a technology for bigger wheels because we haven't really got there yet. But that's something that I'm certainly in my radar. Even bigger than they are right now. Well, much lighter, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the wheels are not exactly lightweight things, you know, so we must get some weight out of them. And that's the objective we have at Jaguar. And I'm up for that, you know, carbon rims or whatever. Yeah. But what's even more impressive is what's going to... The, the, the car industry is going through enormous change at the moment. And the car industry, believe it or not, is putting more effort into resolving some of the world issues on... CO2 and, and energy consumption, any other business in the world, any other industry in the world, although people don't maybe have that perception, it's true, they do. And so therefore the technology that's evolving at the moment in hybrids, electrics, electric-driven cars, it, it, they're, they're growing all the time. And that gives designers an opportunity to think differently about the product completely and start influencing what the motor car actually is for 10 or 15 years' time. It won't be five years' time, 10 or 15 years. And that's where I think designers really have a role to play now to really start influencing the total architecture of the motor car. You know, you don't have an internal combustion engine in the front anymore taking up that space. It could be under the rear seat or, you know, or not the engine, but the electric motor could be and the batteries might be down the middle, whatever. I think um, designers and engineers need to start thinking about how these new layouts are going to evolve you know, to their advantage, so, yeah. and so not just this, assume the, the, the standard. Does this mark a change, do you believe, in the architecture of the vehicle that we've known for? The I think it will past? change, yes. I think it, I think you can take one or two approaches. There'll be that interim period when we'll take existing body shells, and we're working on this ourselves, and we're putting all these new technologies into an existing platform. That's the first stage. The next stage is once we've mastered the technology and the control of that technology, that's the real challenging all this, electronic control of, of hybrids and electric stuff. And, uh, and then we can start to manipulate the whole architecture of the vehicle to something quite different. Can you imagine you had a car with a small electric motor in each wheel, for instance? How much space that would free up? What would it do to the shape of the car? I mean, you know, it's, it's fairly limitless, really. But that's what's going to be coming, and I think that will make changes. And we need to take control of that change. Designers need to take control of that change and, and influence it to the best of their ability. One of the great debates that's been going on in design is do you design a hybrid to look like whatever a hybrid's supposed to look like? Make it look different. Could you make an electric car look different? <coughs> Nissan with the Leaf seems to have gone somewhat in between. It's got an electric car that looks kind of like a normal car without a radiator grill opening. Yes, I've often thought about this. I think what happens is it gives people permission to do something different, and therefore that's what they do. There's also a marketing issue that says if we're going to build a hybrid, we must make it look different. So people who drive them for their own personal PR point of view want to let the world know that's what they're driving. And there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rationale there from their point of view. And that's fine. Um, you know, unless, unless the components themselves dictate a different shape, I don't see why they should be different. I think the components will dictate ultimately a different shape, as I said. But to consciously change it just because it's a hybrid seems a bit you know, unnecessary to me. If it's still got internal combustion in there, which takes up the same space, and it's got a row of batteries somewhere in the trunk and then an engine somewhere else, it doesn't actually change the shape of the car that much. It tends to be a one box almost because it's the next level of, of play. Maybe you should say, well, why don't all cars just look like that? Because that's the next, the next stage to go to in, in the evolution of the motor car. Um, 
I don't know, I find that a little bit puzzling. We're, we're, we're working on hybrid technology, um, and it's, it tends to be, at the moment, the stuff we're looking at is parallel, it's, it's series hybrid, well, we'll have parallel hybrid, of course, but series hybrid EV vehicles. And um, the layer to that car will be very, very similar because we're, we're evolving a current platform to do it, an XJ platform. But there is a need to make the car look different in terms of detail. And it's also to make it look as if it has an added value. This stuff is not cheap. You know, let's not kid ourselves to think electric cars are going to be the answer to everything because it'll only be the answer to everything when everybody can afford them. Mm -hmm. And they're not cheap. A lot of them do get subsidised at the moment. And so if we were to make something of that ilk, it would be even more expensive. And therefore, we have to put over the message that this car has an added value and it has to happen visually. I can see, it, I can see a reason for that. Mm -hmm. But to deliberately to, to design a whole car physically to look different because it's a hybrid is you know, puzzling. You, you mentioned about that your Jaguar is developing hybrids. Mm. What's it like now that Jaguar is no longer part of the Ford Motor Company, has been acquired by Tata? Mm. What's it like under Tata, and are you losing some resources that Ford might have made available for this new technology? Uh, well, we have, to, we have to really start as a company, and I'm not the expert at this, but we really have to start looking at this company to, you know, joint ventures and such like in the future. That's common sense. And a lot of this new technology will be technology that's been developed by the largest suppliers in the world anyway. So you can almost see it as kind of, I wouldn't say plug and play, sounds a bit simple, but that's the sort of technology that we will develop. I, mean, I can't imagine every car manufacturer doing their own electric motor, for instance. It's a very simple entity, really. Um, no, we're, we're fine at the moment. We need to communicate with the, the greater world as a smaller car company, clearly. Um, but being smaller actually has its advantages. It does give us flexibility to go and do and look where we want and, and to be welcomed in as well. I think if you're a larger corporation, it's more difficult to start you know, working with other groups of people because obviously other people don't always want to work with the big corporations. So we have some advantages there. Um, we're not struggling at the moment. We've got a very, very um, sound R&D team. We've got about 4,000 people at Jaguar Land Rover, which is mm. quite mature. That's pretty good high quality people, when you think we're the biggest car business in the whole of the UK, we're obviously getting the cream of the crop. I like to think, I hope yeah. so. And uh, and so it's working quite well at the moment. So I'm optimistic, yeah. I don't think being a, a smaller company is going to really hurt us too much, if at all, really. Working with Tata is interesting. There are very few physical synergies at the moment. They build quite different vehicles from us. You know, mainly trucks and small nano, of course. There's, a, there's very little crossover, physical crossover. There may very well be uh, process crossovers, which, uh, you know, way we work, process working. Although we gained a lot of our knowledge from Ford, which has been extremely helpful. It's got our quality up. But, yeah, time will tell. Uh, Culture-wise, it's slightly different. We've got much more of a, we know where the buck stops now, you know. It's very close. We don't have this great big corporation looking after us and, and uh, in the same way. And uh, Tata do encourage us to look upon ourselves as, a, as an independent entity, you know, standalone. You have to make it on your own. Clearly, they're there to help when things get, get really tough. But sometimes it's not the help you necessarily want. So, you know, we have to, we have to work hard at, at our own survival. As you go around talking to young people, are they as interested in the car business as say the people around this table are, or has it shifted that their, their interests <coughs> lie elsewhere? And so to get 
good young designers to come in to work for you. And we've only got a, a one minute for an answer. The answer, the answer yeah. is yes, it is interested. I think it's more polarized now. You've got people who are fanatical, and then you've got the other group of teen, young youngsters and teenagers who are really not interested at all. But uh, we'll still get the quality of people we want. Um, what we have to make sure is we've got the customers in the future who are interested. That's the main thing. <laughs> and I would think that moving into new areas of technology might bring a younger generation yes, into the industry the, as well. The computer it's, business, I mean, they all love me. I know my sons just, just grew up on computers. They, they can build them, they, you know, so very much the electronic side of life will, will, will draw them in. They're naturals of that stuff, much better than I'll ever be. Well, very good. Ian Callum, thanks so much for coming in, bringing us all up to date on what's going on with Jaguar and Jaguar design in particular. It's been great having you here on Autoline Detroit. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Eddie, great having you. And, and Gary, great having you. Thanks. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As we always do, we left the cameras running, and we have more of our interview with Ian Callum online that you can watch at AutolineDetroit.tv. You can also watch AutoLine Daily there. It's a seven-minute webcast that covers the latest news that's coming out in the industry, no matter where that news is happening. Then on Thursday nights, we do the first live weekly webcast that's ever been done in the auto industry to get the behind-the-scenes information of what's going on, the kind of stuff that is typically off the record. Highly opinionated with blunt commentary, we call it AutoLine After Hours. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you right here next week.